Part two, chapter eight of Israel's faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Israel's faith by Nathan Solomon Joseph. Moral duties. The restraints of law may prevent men from being criminal, but will not make them virtuous. One constantly meets men who are seemingly good citizens and who yet are bad immoral and irreligious men but such a contradiction the mosaic code does not recognize thou shalt be perfect with the lord thy god perfect before god as before the world it is not sufficient to do one's duty to the country in which we live to obey its laws to be patriotic and to pay our dues to the state no one can be a truly good citizen without being a virtuous man love of god first among the moral duties which belong to every religion is the duty to love fear and revere god it seems so simple a matter to love the great being to whom we owe our existence our food our clothing our strength our faculties and all we possess that obedience to this law should be as natural as obedience to the appetites of hunger and thirst but our faith does not permit us to indulge in a piety that costs us nothing and that is a mere obedience to a natural instinct for we are told not merely to love god but to love him with all thine heart with all thy soul and with all thy might what does this signify the long array of martyrs who have sacrificed their lives for the sake of their religion will afford the best interpretation of these words with all our heart the centre of our emotions with all our soul the fountain of our thought our reason and our faith with all our bodily powers with every nerve and every muscle that makes us beings of action we are to show our love of god and be prepared to sacrifice everything for him but we jews are no longer called upon to bear the crown of martyrdom to die for our faith how then can we show our love of god the bible tells us how to keep the commandments of the lord and his statutes which i command thee this day for thy good we have to keep the law not only for god's glory or his pleasure but for our good how can the obedience of a small nation and one of his little planets profit him the creator of the universe behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the lord thy gods the earth also and all that therein is thus love of god means obedience to his will and obedience to his will brings happiness there is one great point of difference between judaism and other religions although our religion undoubtedly requires of us many sacrifices and restraints yet judaism is essentially a happy religion it is not a religion of long faces many fasts and everlasting seriousness our sabbath for instance is not a puritanical sabbath we are not to show our love to god by making ourselves miserable though we are called a kingdom of priests we are not to be a nation of monks and nuns we are not to groan away our lives although several fast days were instituted to commemorate sad events that have befallen our people on one day only in the year does the law bid us afflict our souls we are to serve the lord with gladness enter his presence with a song our religion and our happiness are to go hand in hand our love of god and obedience to his laws are to make us happy 
but though the love of god is a duty enjoined by every religion there is something special about that duty as enjoined upon the jew other religions have their secondary deities or demigods or mediators but the god of the jew is the one sole god the creator of the universe who works by his own great power and who nevertheless may be approached in prayer and supplication by the humblest of his creatures without any mediator and in these words does he declare his sovereign power see now that i even i am he and there is no god with me i kill and i make alive i wound and i heal neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand other faiths have regarded god as a deity who will not forgive without the mediation of a being half god half man or that of a priest our religion represents god as a god merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity transgression and sin so that we need no one to crave pardon on our behalf the priests of other faiths have invented the terrible idea of hell with the devil as its presiding deity in this hell they represent as a place of eternal torment for the souls of the wicked and the unbeliever our religion knows no such sacrilegious ideas it cannot allow that god who claims our love and whose universe abounds with proofs of his kindness can be capable of meeting out eternal punishment to a human soul it cannot conceive that the same god who gave us in his code a true message of love in which we are enjoined to be kind to our neighbors our dependents and even to the helpless brutes could inflict everlasting torture on the souls of those whom he created in his own image would he then permit the existence of a devil or god of evil side by side with him to counteract his goodness and to check his mercy there is no god beside me is the divine declaration the idea that a loving god should inflict eternal punishment is too revolting to be even contemplated we are told to fear god to fear his displeasure not as we would fear a tyrant king but as we would fear to incur the displeasure of a parent or to forfeit his love when he speaks of punishing us it is in the language of a wise father to an erring child it does not threaten us with eternal punishment for a small moment have i forsaken thee but with great mercies will i gather thee in a little wrath i hid my face from thee for a moment but with everlasting kindness will i have mercy on thee saith the lord thy redeemer this is the god we are told to love with all our heart with all our soul with all our might our forefathers were therefore ordered not only to worship no other gods but not even to mention their names they were to overthrow their altars to break down their pillars burn their groves and hew down their graven images moreover superstition of every sort had to be destroyed hence there were laws for the prevention of those superstitious rites practiced by the priests of idolatrous nations who recognized powers other than the great power who rules the universe so we find the command against moloch worship divination witchcraft the observing of times and the other so-called black arts by means of which the priests of ancient religions were wont to influence the vulgar and the ignorant finally the duty of prayer as an outward mode of exhibiting our love of god 
must be the spontaneous homage of the heart not an irksome duty like a tax unwillingly paid must be the voluntary outpouring of the heart not alone in the set phrases of the prayer book but in the unspoken language of our soul for as at the supreme moments of life soul speaks to soul without word or sound or utterance so can man at all times hold silent communion with his maker he can raise his soul upon the wings of prayer and render silent praise to the one and only god respect for parents and for the aged the fifth commandment has already told us something about the duties we owe to our parents but it is not only in the decalogue that these duties are enforced in the nineteenth chapter of leviticus we find ye shall fear every man his mother and his father in the twenty-first chapter of exodus death is ordained as the punishment of the child who strikes or who curses a parent and in deuteronomy we read cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother first and foremost among the duties that we owe to our fellow creatures are those that we owe to our parents these duties are impressed upon us strongly by nature for without being taught them every right-minded child fulfils them by intuition the bible therefore justly treats the wicked irreverent son as an unnatural monster not worthy to live the bad son is certain to be a bad man and a bad citizen in every relation of domestic and social life he is a social pest and is consequently worthy of death in the twenty-first chapter of deuteronomy we read about the punishment incurred by the stubborn and rebellious son the men of his city were to stone him to death throughout the bible and in our later records there is no mention of capital punishment for the offence of a son against his parents so we may hope that there was never cause for such punishment and that the law severe as it seems was rather declared as a terror and a warning to those who might be apt to disregard the duties they owed to their parents closely connected with the laws as to filial duties is that which ordains respect to the aged thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honour the face of the old man and fear thy god for one aspect of this law as well as that relating to assaults on parents must now be forgotten was a custom among many barbarous nations to slay old people who were overwhelmed with the infirmities of age and this act of murder was even committed by sons on their parents although such a custom is shocking to contemplate it is perhaps no worse than might be expected from nations with whom brute force and physical strength were the only qualities that were valued the mosaic code puts old age on a different basis the aged are not to be regarded as mere encumbrances burdening the world with their weaknesses they are not to be cast aside when their work is over and their power of work is spent they are to be treated reverently and respectfully for though their strength of body may have departed they have acquired knowledge and accumulated experience as useful to the world as physical prowess and this is the meaning of king solomon when he says the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness the glory of young men is their strength and the beauty of old men is the gray head thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself the duty involved in this law is one that is included in almost every code of morality in almost every religious system 
there is a well-worn tale told of two learned and rival doctors of the talmud hillel and shammai which bears upon this commandment and indicates the importance attached to it by judaism a scoffing heathen applied to shammai requesting him to teach him the laws of judaism in the short space of time that he could stand on one foot shammai in anger sent the scoffer away thus repulsed he went to hillel and made the same request of him and hillel replied do thou not unto another what thou wouldst not have another do unto thee this is the whole law the rest is mere commentary the precept thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself is a protest against selfishness the origin of every vice and itself the greatest vice if you love your neighbour as yourself you will be just to him you will not wrong him in any way you will not hate despise or dishonour him you will help him in misfortune and you will judge him charitably but it might be argued this law to love one's neighbour as one's self is a little unreasonable nay impossible how can anyone love his neighbour as dearly as he loves himself self-love is deeply implanted in every human heart how then can we be expected to love our neighbour as ourselves your own happiness and welfare depend on the happiness and welfare of others no king was ever happy whose subjects were unhappy no head of a household could be happy if his family and servants are in a constant state of discord no employer can be happy if his workpeople are discontented sullen in their demeanour and perpetually at war with him thus the happiness of every individual depends on the happiness of those with whom he comes in daily contact if therefore you truly love yourself and prize your happiness love your neighbour as much and prize his happiness no one can possibly be truly permanently and honourably happy at the expense of his fellow-creatures wealth with its unequal distribution will always create different social grades and on some the burden of work will ever fall more heavily than on others it does not follow that this burden of work entails unhappiness on the contrary those who have to work too hard are not more unhappy than those who lead a lazy unprofitable life still poverty has its undoubted evils and it is the duty of the rich to soften the hardships that afflict the poor unfortunately in our artificial state of society the relations of employer and employed are far from satisfactory both frequently forgetting the command thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself the master is frequently too exacting to his servant the servant too careless of his employer's interests and hence arise those unhappy relations between employer and employed which have so often culminated in trade disputes outrages and strikes a selfish policy never thrives there are in this country industries which have prospered mainly because masters and men have treated one another as fellow workers with a common interest each loving his neighbour as himself seeking his welfare and looking for happiness in the happiness of his fellows but there are other industries which have failed because masters and men have tried to make as much as possible out of each other regardless of all considerations but their own selfish aims nor is it only in the conflict between labour and capital that this primary law of morality is so often forgotten the disputes between individuals which find their way into the law courts 
and the disputes between nations which give rise to sanguinary wars all have their origin in the neglect of this same law the principles of right and wrong are sufficiently clear so that no man need wrong his neighbor in ignorance if he loved his neighbor as himself he would not wrong him and would no more think of damaging the interests of his neighbor than of endangering his own but as regards nations the law has greater force war that dread curse which has converted many of the fairest gardens of the earth into cemeteries which has changed friends into fiends human beings into brutes and aroused passions which only the hand of death could subdue war would have no existence if every nation instead of envying despising or hating would love its neighbor as itself patriotism becomes the worst of vices when forgetful of that duty a nation wages a war of aggression against a neighbor whose land it covets war is in sober truth a hideous thing and so men strive to clothe its hideousness in decent garb they hide the blood beneath crimson uniform and stifle the groans of wounded men with music they drown the sobs and sighs of orphans and of widows with songs of victory and call the murderous work of battle a work of glory but if the truth be told war is at best but wholesale homicide the aggressors but wholesale murderers aggressive war at best but wholesale robbery the nation longing for its neighbors lands but wholesale plunderers and thieves and of the wars waged or pretended to be waged for a principle of honor none would exist if honor meant but honesty and glory meant god's glory not man's his glory is to make the whole world kin to make this world a world of peace and happiness to make man's life like days of heaven upon earth therefore he gave to man this law of love to love his neighbor as himself to widen the sphere of human sympathies to make the earth one nation and all mankind fellow citizens honesty and truth the duty of truthful honest dealing is set forth in the third and eighth commandments it is repeated in leviticus ye shall not steal neither deal falsely neither lie one to another thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor just balances just weights a just ephah a just him shall ye have the arm of the law in all civilized countries protects the weak against the strong and prevents direct robbery by the highwayman but there is an indirect robbery which too often evades the law and is unfortunately very prevalent in most commercial countries to deal falsely to misrepresent wares merchandise to be what they are not to lie to a purchaser as to the value or cost of a commodity to give short weight are all forms of commercial immorality which sap the foundations of society yet by some are regarded almost as matters of course in mere incidents of business the evils engendered by such loose principles of dealing are incalculable a general distrust and suspicion takes the place of confidence the purchaser is bound to waste his time in a vigilant examination of what he buys lest he may be defrauded and notwithstanding his vigilance he may yet be cheated goods have to be weighed and measured over and over again lest at some point of transfer or transit something may have been abstracted nor must it be imagined that acts of dishonesty exist only among small traders 
recent experience has shown that merchants of the highest reputation have been guilty of gigantic frauds and when those frauds were discovered their plea was simply they were quite the usual thing and that most people did as they did distrust suspicion and loss of time are not the only evils resulting from commercial dishonesty dishonesty breeds dishonesty the honest trader finds that he cannot compete successfully with the dishonest one and becomes dishonest like his neighbor and so the standard of morality becomes generally degraded many think this condition of things harmless because every man of the world is prepared for it and believes nothing but the evidences of his senses but in truth the results are very serious and most serious of all not to the intended victim but but to the dishonest trader himself his notion of honor becomes vitiated and blunted he acquires loose ideas regarding honesty and truth but god has declared that all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the lord thy god and it is surely not difficult to imagine that he who is the essence of truth and justice must abominate those who steal or deal falsely with or lie one to another truth is the basis of all morality a righteous man hateth lying said king solomon he who adheres to truth will be righteous in all things nor must the truthfulness consist merely in abstaining from a direct lie equivocation flattery misrepresentation and duplicity are all forms of lying as hateful as the bold and direct lie perhaps more so deliver my soul from lying lips and a deceitful tongue is the prayer of king david guard my tongue from evil and my lips from uttering deceit is our own thrice repeated daily prayer truth is the guardian of the soul if it retain truth it will retain innocence in contact with the world will leave it unharmed and unstained who asks king david shall ascend into the mountain of the lord or who shall stand in his holy place he that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully he shall receive the blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation slander and false report thou shalt not raise a false report applies not alone to individuals but to things and circumstances great injury may be done by publishing false reports or rumors though they be not intended to injure any one the law just quoted is directed against exaggeration misrepresentation of facts and misstatement of events the love of the marvelous is strongly implanted in the human mind it is curious to notice how easily people believe what they are told and the more marvelous a tale is the more ready people are to believe it it does no one any harm is the common reply to the censure of such false reports but both to the individual and to society it does much harm though the reputation of the individual who may be the subject of the report may remain untouched the lies that have been told in the name of religion have been truly frightful in results it is not too much to say that the true interests of religion have in all ages greatly suffered through the raising of reports of false miracles by the overzealous priests of religions other than our own truth above everything should be the motto of priest preacher and teacher as for truth it endureth and is always strong it liveth and conquereth for evermore 
the interests of religion are always identical with the interests of truth the great god of truth does not want a lie to be told in his service he declares the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which i have not commanded him to speak shall die thou shalt not go up and take as a tale-bearer among thy people is another and more direct law against slander no matter if the tale be true and your neighbor be worthy of blame you are not to be a tale-bearer however blameworthy he may be the fact is no excuse for your hating him thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart thou shalt in no wise rebuke thy neighbor and suffer no sin to rest upon him this law represents the true principle of religious charity and is at the same time a caution to those self-righteous people who take delight in reviling their less religious neighbors such people who are righteous over much as king solomon calls them are directed to show their piety not by looking down with supercilious glance upon their less pious neighbors but by remonstrating with them privately and by gently winning them over to the path of virtue purity thou shalt be perfect with the lord thy god though there are very many ordinances which relate to the subject of moral purity this one comprehends all the rest for it enjoins us to be modest chaste and pure it bids husband and wife to be faithful to each other it bids us to be decent in our conduct demeanor and conversation and even in our thoughts and so to be perfect with the lord forgiveness most difficult of all duties is the duty of forgiveness for forgiveness is not always within our control still god commands us thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself i am the lord and a little consideration will show that forgiveness of an enemy is a duty that we owe equally to god to ourselves and to our fellow creatures the sooner an injury is forgotten the better for our own peace of mind moreover by forgiving others we make ourselves worthy of forgiveness by the almighty to the merciful god will show himself merciful this is the highest charity the greatest kindness of man to his fellow to give alms to the poor to help the distressed to be kind to the stranger are all easy and pleasant duties but to love our enemy so far as to forego vengeance and bear him no grudge is the highest form of virtue because it is so much at variance with our strongest impulses kindness to animals god gave man dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth man was to have control over the animal creation but he was to remember that all birds and beasts and creeping things are yet god's creatures all alike objects of his loving care accordingly when god gave us the law he impressed upon us the duty of kindness to animals for seven days after birth no animal was permitted to be taken away from its mother if an animal had to be slaughtered it might not be killed on the same day as one of its young lest perchance the one might see the suffering of the other an ox was not permitted to be muzzled while treading out the corn lest it might be irritated at being prevented in the presence of plenty from satisfying its hunger nor was an ox permitted to be yoked with an ass at the plough lest the pace or tension of one animal might 
overtaxed the strength of the other. No animal might be worked on the Sabbath day, so that even the poor dumb brute shared with man the blessing of rest. It was commanded that anyone seeing an animal fall beneath its burden must render help to raise it. Even if thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. It is pronounced to be a duty to lead back an animal that has strayed, even if it be owned by an enemy. During the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness, all animals that were slaughtered for food had to be brought for that purpose to the door of the tabernacle, and it was unlawful to slay an animal elsewhere. The blood of the slaughtered animal was sprinkled on the altar, and the fat was burned. In this manner, the act of slaying an animal for food was dignified and promoted to a religious act, and there was no chance of any wanton cruelty. When the Israelites reached the promised land, this restriction was removed, and they were allowed to slay animals anywhere. The law which thus first gave to the priests the province of slayers of the cattle probably gave rise to the custom always prevalent among the Jews, even down to the present time, of appointing men of high religious characters as slaughterers of animals used for food. The best guarantee was thus afforded that the prescribed rules should be conscientiously observed, and also that the animals should be slain with the least possible pain. The Jew, consequently, does not, as a rule, indulge in that kind of sport which consists of killing. He does not shoot pigeons, grouse, and pheasants for the mere pleasure of taking deadly aim at them. The animal he requires for food he is slain by the most expert, thus avoiding all needless torture. If we are asked why God made so many laws for the protection of animals from cruelty, we may reply that the laws enjoining kindness to dumb animals forms only part of the great law of love which the Pentateuch inculcates. If man be taught by these laws to be kind to dumb animals, will he not all the more be kind to his fellow man? Will not he, who spares pain to his ox, spare pain also to his servant, and treat his dependents with kindness and with brotherly love? End of part two, chapter eight.